1 John chapter 4, verse 17 through 21. What is perfect love? And is that really possible? Is perfect love really possible? Well, we're going to find out. If you would, stand for reading of God's word. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God, whom he has not seen? This commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. This is the word of God. Please be seated. What is perfect love? And is that really possible to have perfect love? Well, we'll find out. The theme of 1 John is this, that you may know that you have eternal life. And he's given many tests over and over. But the love test is something that he repeats. Love. Love your brother. Love your brother. Love your brother. Over and over and over. Last week, we talked about what is love really. And we learned some things about love. We learned that love is not based on our feelings. It is not a feelings-based thing. Love is not smothering love. Love is not demanding love. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. Well, what is love really? And we learn the main characteristic of love is that love nourishes and cherishes, provides for and protects people, the, the, the one that the object of love. And we know that God provides for and protects us. He nourishes us and cherishes us by giving us his commandments. All of his commandments are designed, are, are an act of his love that provides for and protects his people. So God demonstrates his love for us by giving us his commandments. There aren't, there aren't something that is, that is to, to, to stifle your life. It is to make your life better. It's to make your life better. So the main characteristic of love is nourishing and cherishing. Anything that attempts to undermine nourishing and cherishing, providing for and protects, we must resist. And whether it's a person, whether it's an activity, whether it's something that comes into your life that takes you away from God, your main love object, or other things in your life that should be a priority, those things have to be resisted. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says this, tells us how, how love nourishes and cherishes. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Notice it doesn't say sometimes protects, sometimes trusts, sometimes hopes. No, always, always, always. God modeled these attributes for us. He, he loved us sacrificially and that he came and he sacrificed his life for us. He nourishes us and cherishes us. He provides for and protects us because he died for us that we may have life with him forever. That is God's love. And also, God's love is an expression of his will. He willed to love us. He didn't love us because we were all that lovable. Look at yourself. Are we that lovable all the time? No. Sometimes we are prickly pears. Sometimes we are porcupines. Sometimes we are not very lovable. But he loves us in spite of who we are. That's the amazing thing about God. So God's love is, a, is, an, is an act of his will, and so is our love, agape love for somebody else. It's an act of our will. It's a supernatural thing. So he didn't love us because we were lovely. He loves us sacrificially. It's an act of his will. And God's love is an expression of who he is, not what he does. He is love personified. Love personified. So, how does this supernatural love really occur in our lives? And I hope that you will really indelibly imprint this into your mind. 
We cannot love supernaturally unless we are abiding in Christ. That is, an, that is a requisite. That is a requirement for abiding, for, for, for loving perfectly or loving with a mature love. We must be abiding in him. And, and it's not natural. It's a supernatural thing. Love sacrifices for others. So that's supernatural. Love nourishes others. Love is giving, not, re, not always receiving. It is, is a giving. It's an outward thing. That's not natural. That's supernatural. And it's an act of our will. It's an act of many times, many times you don't feel like loving. Many times that, that comes into your feelings. We do not act on our feelings. We do not act on our feelings. It's an act of our will. It's supernatural. And again, we must abide in him. The only way that we can love this way is by abiding in Christ. The Holy Spirit is in, is in us. It's supernatural. We cannot always protect, always trust, always hope, and always persevere unless we are abiding in the power source. And you're going to find out that this we can abide, and in a millisecond, we won't be abiding. We can be very much connected to God, and a millisecond later, we are connected to us. Me, myself, and I wanting my way. This week, what is perfect love? And is that really, is that even possible? Well, we're going to find out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. As always, the study, the word of God, that a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Lord, this word is the truth. Help us to plant it inside of our beings. Holy Spirit, please teach us today the things that you want us to know. Help us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is perfect love? Well, we talked about love, 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 and 1 John is filled with love. Over and over, it's about love. Uh, But he he also says in in verse 18, perfect love casts out fear, conquers fear. Now, there's no fear in love. There's no fear in love. So the question is this, what is fear? Now, in the Greek, the word is phobos. And it can have a, from our, the root word, we get our word phobia from, all kinds of phobias that people have. And it can be, in a good sense, uh, awesome respect, reverence, awe, that sort of thing. But in the sense that we have gotten since the fall of man, since sin came into the world, it is a terrible emotion. It is terror, timidity, dread. The human response to to fear is to run from fear, to hide from fear. And again, these phobias just permeate our culture. I'll just give you a few of them. Acrophobia, the fear of heights. Have you ever gotten, now look, I can get to this edge of this platform, and I can stand on one foot, and I can lean over, but if that's a mile down, you know where I'm at? I'm back here someplace going, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Everybody has that fear. You go stand over the Grand Canyon and tell me you're going to be hanging out like some brave, no, uh uh-uh. Acrophobia is one. Aerophobia, the fear of flying. How about this one? Arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. Now, who doesn't have that? Who wants a big old spider climbing in your sleeping bag? Astrophobia, the fear of thunder and lightning. You don't think that might be a big deal for you, but I'll tell you, when God thundered and lightning on Mount Mount Sinai, that was fearful dread. That was fearful. There's claustrophobia, fear of confined spaces. Hemophobia, the fear of blood. Hydrophobia, the fear of water. There's even something called agarophobia, that people are afraid to go out of their houses. 
into the world around them. That's fear. That is controlled by fear. And that is not what God desires for us. Hear this. You must know this. Fear is not from God. That tremulous fear, that fear of of, of engaging in your world is not from God. It's a foreign emotion, and its root is in sin. The first fear occurred, guess where? In the Garden of Eden, when they were hiding, Adam and Eve were hiding. And they said, I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. The human response to fear is to hide and run and tremble. Fear came with sin. Fear is part of our fallen human condition. And folks, I don't care how brave you are, there will be a time when you are fearful, when fear will come into your being. And fear has its companion. You know, fear has its companion. Worry. People have worry. You know, worry happens in the mind. Anxiety is worried carried out in the body. It's when you get ulcers. It's when every bone, every bone in your body hurts. It's when you're tossing and turning at night. That's that, that worry that's being carried out in your body in the form of anxiety. That's not where God wants us to be. Hear Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God has not, has not given us the spirit of fear. Now, that fear is a different word. It's, de- it's delia, and it actually means cowardice, timidity, or fearfulness. But he has not given us the spirit of fear, but what of power, dunamis power. Remember, dunamis, every word that is dunam, that starts with D-U-N-A in the prefix means you are capable. It is capable power. He has not given you the, the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind, a disciplined mind, a controlled mind, a mind that can overcome fear, worry, and anxiety, a mind that is focused on God and not on the stuff that is around you. That's what he's given us. How can I have a sound mind in a fearful world? Again, we must, must, must refocus on the master and not on the world that is around us. We must do that. We have to abide in Christ, be at home in Christ. Remember our our psalm that we gave when we talked about worry and anxiety? Psalm 16, verse 8. I will set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be moved. Oh, man, that gets you. That gets you. How about Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 9? Be anxious about nothing, but in all things, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, don't you want that? Which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then he tells you how to carry it out. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think on these things, not on your worry. Not on your worry. He gives us a way out. Worry and anxiety are emotions that are useless. They are useless. You know, fear might have a beneficial thing. It's okay to be afraid of uh, jumping off a building and breaking, you know, it'll it'll stop you from doing some crazy things, okay? But this, this fear that takes over your body where you can't function, and where you're ruminating on something over and over and over with anxiety and worry, that is not from God. That is not from God. Here are a couple of scriptures that might help you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can, nothing. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord. He heard me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. That's our God. Matthew 6, 34, this is a very popular one. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. 
And then finally, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, and hear this, casting all your anxieties, not some of your anxieties, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's our God. He loves us. Corey Ten Boom said this. Corey Ten Boom says this. Worry does not empty tomorrow of sorrows. It empties today of strength. Isn't that something? Worry. In John's text today, he is speaking about a pending judgment that can cause fear, anxiety, and worry. Every human will one day stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of his life. Every human will do this. If you're saved, it'll be at the Bema Seat Judgment, which we're going to go over again, because we've been here many times, so you're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it probably has a fold there, because we've been there a million times. Or you're going to be at the Great White Throne Judgment, Revelation chapter 20. For those who have rejected Jesus Christ, the books are open, their names are not found in the book of life, and they end up separated from God in the lake of fire forever. What a tragedy. What a tragedy, because Jesus did everything. Remember, the hell was created for the devil and his angels, not for humanity. He's given us a way out. Take the rescue. Take the rescue. The question is, on this day, when you stand before God at the Bema Seat Judgment, which, by the way, is a fate complete. Complete. I mean, it's a done deal. Every one of us will stand there before God and give an account of our lives. Now, will we approach that day with boldness? or will we approach that day with fear and shame? That is the question. Well, starting in verse 17 and 18, we see perfect love conquers fear. Watch this. Love has been perfected. That means complete, mature, complete, mature, perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness, oh, in the day of judgment. I never thought we could have boldness in the day of judgment. But it says here that we can. We're going to learn about this. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves, what does it say? Torment. Torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. He is telling us something here that is very important. Perfect love conquers fear. Now, what is the word perfect? Perfect love casts out fear. The word perfect means this, to complete, to finish, reaching one's prescribed goal. Reaching one's prescribed goal. Now, what does perfect love look like? What does it look like? Well, John Stott helps us with this. He says, John is not suggesting that any Christian's love could in this life be flawlessly perfect, because it can't. We're not perfect people. But rather developed and mature and fixed upon God. Notice this, perfect love is not without flaws or shortcomings, but has reached its intended goal. It's going in a specific direction. It's going in a direction. We can never be perfect on this side, but we are moving in a direction of transforming from old us to new us, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. For everyone, when will we be made perfect? When we're glorified, that's right. That's when perfection, it's not happening here. It won't happen until we're in heaven. But the important thing is that we're marching in the right direction. Remember, here we're being sanctified, set apart unto God, being conformed to the likeness of Christ. It's not perfection, but remember, it's direction. Where are we going? It's a direction. 
Are you marching in the right direction? Are you growing? That is the question. That is the question only you can answer. Those engaged with the Holy Spirit in the transformation process, those are the ones that are growing. We must engage with the Spirit of God to do this. This doesn't happen by just pushing the growth button. I'm growing or taking a, a leaf off the growth tree. Oh, no. This happens when we abide in Christ and we are obedient to the Holy Spirit. We're spending time in his word, spending time with his people, spending time in prayer and growing and becoming more like Jesus. That's how it happens. And we will, this, trauma, this, this transformation can occur. Now, notice what it says in verse 17. We will have boldness or confidence, as it says in the NIV, on the day of judgment. Now, why in the world will we have confidence on the day of judgment? Because I have certainly fallen short. And I imagine you have fallen short. Even this week you fall, have fallen short. And I would even guess that maybe this morning you had a little fall short, okay? Well, let's answer this. Perfect love gives us boldness. Now, hear this. The more that we abide in Christ, the bolder we will be. Now, what is boldness? What is boldness? Is boldness, I'm cocky? Is boldness, I'm arrogant? Is boldness, look at me, I got the touchdown? You know, boom, boom, look at me. No, that is not what boldness means. And the word is parisia. And it means this, the freedom to say all that's on one's mind without fear or anxiety. We can, at the Bema Seat Judgment, have boldness. Isn't that amazing? Without fearing, at our Judgment Seat appointment, because we have Holy Spirit boldness. We have been dwelling, menno, abiding in Christ. That has been the way our life has been generally directed. That's, that's the key. Now, also, I want you to know this. We can also have this boldness while we are here. How do I know that? Because in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, we see these words. For we do not have a high priest. Remember, that's Jesus, what he's doing now, interceding for us, who cannot sympathize with our weakness. He knows what it's like to be here. He knows what it's like to endure temptation. Jesus knows what, is, what we go through on this side, okay? Let us therefore come boldly, oh, that's our word parisia, to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace and, and to help in the time of need. We can say all that we want right now before our Savior. He will hear us. He will hear us. He encourages us to come before him without fear or anxiety, and just lay it before him. That's what he does. Now, an important thing to remember is this concerning your judgment seat appointment. Believers will not be judged for their sin. That's a done deal. That happened at the cross. Our sins are judged. We have the verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But do you know how significant that really is? I want to try to give you a picture of this. If you would, turn to... Turn to Psalm chapter 103, verses 10 through 12. Psalm chapter 103, verses 10 through 12. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus taking all of our sins, dealing with our sin debt. Watch how, how significant this is. Now, we see in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious. That is a characteristic of our God. Mercy, not giving us what we deserve. Grace, giving us what we don't deserve. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. 
He has not dealt with us according to our sins. We must realize that. He has mercied us and mercied us and mercied us and graced us and graced us and graced us, nor punished us according to our, our iniquities. Now watch this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth. We've read this before. That's a great distance, isn't it? So great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins from us. Now, I want you to think about something. When you think about the heights of the heavens, just to give you a little perspective, how high are the heavens above the earth when you consider that there are 30 billion miles between stars, those little dots that you're seeing? 30 billion miles between stars, okay? And the, the stars are as numerous as the grains of the sand of the sea. The heavens are infinitely high. That's the height of God's love. That's the heights of God's mercy. That's the heights of how far he has taken our sins from us. Watch this. Voyager, that's that satellite that's trying to, to make a little dent in the universe. Oh, we're going to discover what's out there. This thing is so vast, you're not ever going to find anything. It's traveling at 17.3 kilometers a second. And it's traveling away from the sun. And do you know that to reach the end of the universe, to see the speed of light, it takes 13 billion years for the light to get to the, to the known end of the universe to get here. So there's 13 billion years to do that. It will, that at that speed, it'll have to travel 225 trillion years to reach this distance. At the speed of light, it would take 13 billion years. Our sins are cast from us as far away as the east is from the west, as heavens are high. They are non-existent. That way you can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sins have been taken care of. Good job. Amen. Yes. With that statement, it gives you a little bit of perspective because we always use that verse, there's no condemnation. Now you know that those sins are gone. Gone. Not that we're sinless. We have to deal with our sins here. We confess our sins to give us in right, right relationship with God when we sin. But our sins have been dealt with on the cross, folks. So what will we be judged for? Well, the believer's judgments is, is their works after salvation. It's, it's called the Bema Seat judgment for rewards or loss of rewards. And this is a big deal. A lot of people say, I'm just going to get into heaven. I just want to get into heaven. Well, I'm going to show you why it's a big deal here in just a second. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. Your Bible might just flip open to that. We've been there enough. Now, we know that there's no other foundation that we can build our lives on except Jesus Christ. That's it. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not any Hindu gods. It is Jesus Christ only. And he talks about on that foundation. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, or straw, each one's work, work will become clear for that day, the day will declare it. Now, that day is the judgment day. That is the Bema Seat judgment day. That word is actually found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, which we aren't going to go to today. That day will declare because it will be revealed by fire. And fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Is it going to be burned up or is it not going to be burned up? If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But watch this but he himself will be saved, yet as through the fire. Now, this is significant. Perfect love will be rewarded at the judgment. 
there's two groups that are going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ. Group number one is this. Those actively involved in the sanctification process, being conformed to the likeness of Christ, becoming more like Christ, loving more like Christ, faithful in good works. Remember, it's perfection, not direction. And we're marching towards the goal. That's sanctification, marching towards the goal. Now hear this. Marchers will be rewarded. Marchers will be rewarded. We'll receive a reward. That word is mythos. Mythos. And it means wages, rewards, and the Bible often talks of rewards as crowns. There are five crowns that believers can potentially get. And I believe these will be given at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. The first crown is the victor's crown. And it is for self-discipline. Do you know that Christianity is a disciplined life? It is spending time with God on a disciplined time frame. We set aside a time for him. We have him engaged in our day. Bible, prayer, fellowship, those types of things. It's a disciplined life. And if you live a disciplined life, you get to have a crown. And that's going to be important. Doesn't sound like a big deal here, but I bet you it's a big deal there. Then there's a crown of rejoicing for those who have led others to Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Then there's a crown of righteousness given for those longing for the return of Jesus. Now, I'm telling you, I might not get anything else, but I am longing for his return. Maranatha. Remember, where am I getting my tattoo? Maranatha, right across my forehead. Everybody can see it. This is what's important to me. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The fourth is the crown of life. Now, here, this is interesting. It's for those who have endured Notice the word, endured and triumphed over trials and temptation. Not for those who have crumbled in the trial. Not for those who have crumbled when the temptation comes or the persecution comes. Even to the point of martyrdom, dying for your faith. So those who die for their faith get, get the crown of life. But also those who have navigated through the trials of life and have endured them and come through them. We'll get the crown of life. Isn't that something? It's available to, to all of us. And finally, it's the crown of glory. That's going to be for the shepherds, for those who have shepherded a flock. And guess what you're going to do with your crown? You're going to have five crowns. You're going to be strutting around heaven with five crowns like a big old buck deer. And, you know, look at look how big my crowns are. Compared. No. We know in, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, what do we do with our crowns? We cast them at the feet. Why do we do that? Because we realize that it all came from Jesus. <laughs> it didn't come from us. We can take no credit. No credit. These are not by any means the only rewards distributed in heaven. And I will suggest to you that the chief reward that you will receive is when you see Jesus Christ face to face. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine that day when he grabs you and gives you a great big old hug? And he says, welcome home. That's the greatest reward of all. And to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Wouldn't you love to hear that tagged on to you? Yeah. Whatever our rewards are, they'll be greater than we can imagine because God is a generous, generous God. What do we see in Hebrews 11.6? He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Again, that's the word. It comes from the root word mythos. He will give you wages, reward. 
And guess what? Romans 11.35, no one can outgive God. No one can outgive God. He is a generous, loving, kind God. That's group one. But guess what? There's group two that'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ. These are Christians. These are saved. But they have nothing to show for their lives. No works of godly value. All their works are burned up. Why? Because they have done everything for themselves. They're saved as through the fire, 1 Corinthians 3.15. The result is no boldness and no confidence at the, at the Bema Seat judgment, but they will suffer loss. To experience detriment is actually what that word says. The shame of missed opportunity. Remember, you're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the personification of love, of immense, pure, complete love. And I do not believe that your shame will come from Jesus going, oh, you should have ought, you should have better, you should have done this. Oh, you didn't do that? Oh, good. I don't think that's going to happen because he is pure love. You know what I think happens? Is this. Our shame, our distress will come from our knowing what Jesus did for us and what we, in turn, didn't do for him. Can you imagine that when we're standing there and we know that we have this pure love before us and what he did for us, coming here to be one of us, dying on a cross for us, took all the humiliation, bare naked, beaten to a pulp, humiliated, spat upon for us. He took everything for us. And we will realize it at that moment. And then we were, I just couldn't quite muster it up to do anything for you, Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that feeling? You know what I think Jesus will do at that time? I bet you he'll just embrace you and he'll love you through that whole mess. But there will be a time when we feel that distance, that, I, oh, God, I wish I would have done more. I wish I would have done more. Look, we know that perfect love will be rewarded. But we also see in this text that the perfect love cast out fear. No fear of judgment. If we are marching towards Christ, no fear in this life. No fear in this life. Goodbye to phobias. Isn't that, wouldn't that be nice? Goodbye to your phobias. And I believe when we get to heaven, we will fully, fully, fully realize this fact. That all of our, even a hint of worry, even a hint of anxiety, and even a hint of fear was a huge, giant waste. A huge, giant waste. And we went through a lot of torment in verse 18 for nothing. Jesus over and over says, don't worry, don't fear, don't worry, don't fear. By the way, don't worry, don't fear. When we fear, we are demonstrating something. We are demonstrating our immature, incomplete love. Verse 18, he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Perfect love, abiding love, cast out fear. You know what that word cast out is? It means thrown out, thrown down, thrust out, forces implied. Get away from me, fear. Get away from me, worry and anxiety. Get away from me. Perfect love truly does conquer fear. When we abide in Christ, perfect love, we will not fear. But when we do not abide, when we do not abide, we can then become consumed with worry, anxiety, and fear that invades our soul 
invades our mind. The key is abiding. What is perfect love? Well, verse 19 through 21, perfect love source is God. We can't muster this up. We can't manufacture this. Somebody can't do this for you. It comes from God. Verse 19 through 21, we love him because he first loved us. Let that be indelibly imprinted in our minds. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, doesn't John just hit you right between the peepers? Is this seeker-sensitive talk? Is this appealing to the culture around you? He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment, get that word, commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Perfect love comes from God. God pursues us. God pursued you. Everyone in this room that has said yes to Jesus Christ, God pursued you. You weren't going for him. You weren't searching for him. He searched for you. God always is the initiator in our relationships. He pursues us. He sacrificed for us. He loves us even when we were enemies. Isn't that amazing? Even when we were enemies, dead in our trespasses and sins. God always is the one who pursues us. Remember, God finds us. We do not find him. Remember, how many often do you say, I found Jesus? Or they found Jesus. Or they got Jesus. No, Jesus found us. Ravi Zacharias has this thing called, Daddy, I found you. And he writes this. He tells a story about a girl who became hopelessly lost in a dark and dense forest. She called and she screamed, but to no avail. Her alarmed parents and a group of volunteers searched frantically for her. When darkness fell, they had to give up for the night. Early the next morning, the girl's father re-entered the forest to search for her and spied her fast asleep on a rock. Can you imagine his relief? He called her name, ran toward her, startled her awake. She threw her arms out to him. He picked her up, hugged her, and she repeated over and over and over, over, Daddy, I found you. Isn't that That's how we are with God. I found Jesus. Well, who? Robbie goes on to say, we who believe on Jesus sometimes speaking of finding him, but why did we seek him in the first place? Because like the shepherd who went out into the darkness to find one lost sheep, God seeks us. He is waiting for us to realize our lostness and to reach out to him. He will pick us up, embrace us, and give us his peace. That is perfect love. God finds us. We do not find him. Important thing to know. Perfect love comes from God. Secondly, perfect love will allow us to love our brothers, the family of God. And if we don't, then what does he call us? A liar in verse 20. He's repeating this over and over. Verse 21, he who loves God must love his brother also. Now, I want to suggest to you something. We've been through this many times, but hear this. The nemesis or the enemy of brotherly love is offense. Is offense. You've heard this before. We've been through it many times, but it's a good time to repeat it. Is brotherly love an issue in the church? Is offense a problem in the church? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Because of the fall, all humans must deal with being offended. Being offended. 
Offense is merely a snare of the enemy. It's a trap to keep you from doing what you once loved. It's a trap from keep you from being with the people that you love because you were offended and separated from them. That's the number one. The word offend is scandalon, and it simply means the trigger in a trap where the bait is placed. And Satan knows the exact bait for you. He knows the worm. He knows the minnow. He knows exactly what titillates you. And watch this guy. Isn't this a picture of us going through for the bait? I mean, I can't wait to take that hook because, oh, I love the money. Show me the money. That's my bait. But it could be something else. You could have the gossip bait. You could have the lust bait, the drug bait, the gluttony bait, the all-about-me bait. You can have any kind of bait. He's got your bait hooked just for you. And guess what we're doing? We're going right at it to gobble that thing up. Now, the thing that you want to do, and I please indelibly imprint this into your mind, don't take the bait. You don't have to take the bait. Please don't. By all means, don't. If you take the bait, snap. The trap is sprung. Satan's ultimate goal with humans in relationships is isolation, separation, and withdrawal. To hate is to love less. You might not have vehement hate for that person, but you have withdrawn, and you have definitely loved them less. Over and over, this happens. It doesn't just happen in churches. This happens in families, husband and wife relationships, with children, with siblings, with your brothers and your sisters, with friends, anywhere there are relationships, offense can happen. Hear this loud and clear. Perfect love, mature love, will not stick their head into the bait trap. Now, do you believe that? Hold on. Immature love will be offended very easily. Qualifier. Qualifier, okay? At any time, you who are mature, you who have been abiding in Christ, you who have been actively involved in the sanctification process, you who have been growing and growing and looking more like Jesus and less like you, in a second, in a millisecond, can transition to immature you. Have you noticed immature you? It's awful when immature you comes out, isn't it? It never is good. It never is good. And you can stick your head into the trap. None of us are exempt. What's the difference? The mature person readily recognizes this misstep and takes corrective action. I'm sorry. I ask you to forgive me. I want to restore this relationship as quickly as we possibly can. I don't want this to go any farther. I want to own what I've done in this thing and make this thing better. As Christians, we should be able to do that. The world has an awful time with it. In the church, we have an awful time with it. And we must rise above this. We have to act in a mature fashion. Act in a mature fashion. Corrective action. Nobody's exempt. Perfect love comes from God. He pursues us. He finds us. Perfect love will allow us to love our brothers. Don't take the offense bait. Number three, perfect love obeys Jesus. Immature love waffles, justifies, makes excuses. Verse 21 says this, In this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must, must, must love his brother also. 
That was Jesus' final commandment in the book of John, wasn't it? In John 13, 34, new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. This way all men will know you're my disciples by loving one another. But he also, watch how he deals with this pharisaical lawyer who tries to trap him in Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He wants to trick him. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You must love God and you must love your neighbor like yourself. How do we love our neighbor? We nourish and cherish them. We provide for and we protect them. We love them sacrificially. We love them by an act of our will. Those involved in perfect love are actively engaged in obeying Jesus' commands. Again, we won't do this all the time. No human will do this all the time. It's not perfection, but what is it? Direction. It's growth. And can you see the difference that Jesus makes in your life? Folks, he points you in the right direction. He nudges us in the right direction. We just simply need to go in the right direction. Conclusion. What is perfect love? Is that really possible? Well, let's see. Points to think about. Perfect love casts out fear. The fear of God is very important. That is awesome respect for God is essential for a believer. But tremulous fear, terror, must not be part of a believer's life. Trust God and fear not is our motto. Don't allow worry, the mind, to transition into anxiety, the body, and to live in fear. Don't allow that to be part of your life. Get rid of the phobias. Cast them out. Throw them down. Perfect love casts out fear. Secondly, perfect love is not about performance. It's not about saying, I'm just going to make up in my mind to love you more. I'm just going to do this. I'm just No, it's not about that. It's, it's an overflow of abiding in Christ. The only way we can love the way Jesus loved is to abide in him. It's an outflow from abiding in him. Haddon W. Robinson says this, When I consider my relationship with God, therefore I tend to feel that his affection for me is based on my performance. Hmm. When I do well, he loves me, but when I follow up, then I expect only his scorn. That would be a wrong view of God. Yet God does not love us because we deserve it. He loves us in spite of what we are. In, John, in 1 John 4.10 we read, and This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we know we are always loved by God. We know we are always loved by God. And that shatters our pride, dispels our fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love is not about performance. And perfect love loves the least of these. Loves the tough ones to love. You have tough ones to love in your life. It might be a brother, it might be a sister, it might be a church member. It could be a husband, could be a wife, could be a whoever. We know we will never be perfect here. Again, I have to emphasize that. And remember, it's, it's not perfection, it's direction. How can I know that I'm going in the right direction? Well, Joni Yoders gives us some help with this. Hear her words in The Measure of Love. She says this, while visiting a Christian home... I saw these words displayed on a wall plaque. 
You love Jesus only as much as you love the person you love the least. How many people, I love Jesus. I love him. I swear I love him. Don't want anything to do with anybody around me, but I love Jesus. Yeah. I squirmed. She says this. I squirmed at those revealing words. Later I found similar words in 1 John 4.20. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? After that, I often caught myself criticizing others while overlooking my own glaring faults. If I love Jesus only as much as I love the people I criticized, then I love Jesus very little. This grieved me. This frustrated me, she says, and I seemed unable to love Jesus and others as I should. She goes on to say, in 1 John 4.10, we learned that the key to knowing love isn't found in our love for God, but rather in his love for us. He showed the depth of his love in Jesus' sacrificial death for our sins. That's our example. Sacrificial. Sacrificial. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4.11. She says this, Now when I fail to love others, I seek God's forgiveness. I ask him to help me to show others the kind of love that he has showed me. And then she finishes with this. Do you long to love Jesus more? Start with loving the people around you. Remember, love for Jesus and love for others always goes together. Loving the least sounds a lot like perfect love, doesn't it? What is perfect love? It is mature love. It is a natural overflow a result of abiding in Christ. It doesn't happen naturally. It happens supernaturally as we abide. Love that will flow into the world around you for real. Is perfect love possible? I would suggest to you, yes, it is, but only as long as we're abiding in Jesus. It comes from him. It does not come from us. We can't do this. We can't do this in our depraved state. And when you stop abiding in Jesus, say goodbye to perfect love. When you decide to do your thing, do it my way, demand your rights, you can say goodbye to perfect love. Perfect love is Christ's love flowing through me to the world around me. 1 John 3.18 says this, and I'll finish with this statement. Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. That is perfect love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to study your word. We're grateful for First John. It's amazing how often we go through this thing of loving one another. Lord, it seems like you want us to get hold of this. Over and over and over we've gone through this. Help us to realize what real love is. Love is not a feeling. Love is a, is a determination that you put in our hearts. We love because you first loved us. We love because your love is manifested in us. We love as an act of the will, not a feeling. It is a direction of our life. Lord, help us to get a grasp on what love really is. How we are to love really can really happen as we abide in Christ. Lord, help us to not be fooled by the world and its view of love. This feeling love. This, this emotional love, Lord, those are all parts of the initial attraction between a, a man and a woman. But that is not what sustains a relationship. What sustains a relationship is agape love. Agape love. 
a direction of the will, a sacrificial love. I will love you in spite of how you're acting at this moment. Thank you, Lord, that you have loved us in that way. We have all presented before you pitifully, and yet you still love us, and we say thank you. Thank you again, Holy Spirit, for this time to study your word and use this word to touch each one of our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.